Well, we welcome you to another episode of Eternal Core Podcast. And Daryl Alder here from Mobilize with Tom today. Um, and I want to talk to you a little bit about um, aspects of your practice and your life and teaching at the university that brought you to need us to reconnect our hearts and souls and spirit to our brains. So give me some insights into what your motivation is. Great question. Initially, I remember feeling a, a real letdown in my educational experience because so much of it was based on theoretical constructs. Right. And um, initially I was trained in the uh, 70s and late 60s in more Freudian psychoanalytic base. And I liked the underpinning that that created in my life because it, it gave me a sense of, oh, they've really thought this through. But it always felt a bit hollow. It felt like it, there, there were a lot of things missing. And the one thing that when I was able to start my treatment, um, well, let, let me go back one, one brief step. Initially, I learned a lot of psychoanalytic stuff. And then I moved into a very behavioral, Skinnerian type of a, you know. Now, our readers might not know what that meant. Those last two statements, you okay. said psychoanalytic and then... Skinnerian. Yes, there's okay. a word I may have trouble typing for the blog. <laughs> well, it was, it was Skinner, and he, oh, was, he okay. was the director of, of the Skinnerian approach. But that was it, was very, it was very behavioral. It was looking at people like rats through a maze. Uh -huh. And what you did is you really reinforced good behavior, and you extinguished... Uh, bad behavior by not reinforcing it or subtly uh, ignoring it over and over again and then not so subtly ignoring it until it extinguished because we, you know, Skinner believed that we, you know, we were just all part of the animal structure and what was reinforced continued and what was not reinforced diminished and ended up being extinguished. And does that work? Um, well, it works if you can constantly keep people in a rat maze. But the problem is, is people in life, the variables are very complicated. And you, you can believe that you can control them, but the reality is, is you can't control people that way unless you're constantly on them and constantly feeding them Fruit Loops, you know, shoving the, the Oreo cookies down their throat and saying, good boy, you did that very well. Here's another Oreo cookie. And so that I felt very um, confused, but also, no, this can't be right. There's something profoundly missing. And what was missing was the relationship. Because, you know, yeah, you can sit there and behavioralize people to death, but there's no relationship. So what do you mean by relationship? That you have a relationship with them, love them, like them. Yeah, that you're real. That you're that you're a real human being. See, the doctor-patient structure was very rigid in its format. That 
the doctor kind of sat away from the chair from psychoanalytic. You, you really didn't look at them because they were either behind you or they were, they were distant from you and you just allowed your mind to kind of go with it and your subconscious, the rehearsing of your subconscious and figuring those things out are what the, you finally figured it all out. I mean, that's the psychoanalytic process. And what you do is you nudge them in the appropriate direction by questioning or by grunting in the right places. <laughs> or stroking your make-believe beard or, you know, doing something that, that said, yes, you know, keep moving forward, keep going with this. But it took forever. You know, you can be in psychoanalysis for years for your entire life. And I thought there had to be a better way. And so then I heard so much about Skinner's approach because people were getting better really quickly. But then you always have to be there reinforcing them or teaching someone to reinforce them. And then, you know, we're treating people like they're rats in a maze. And I didn't like that idea too. So then I became very reality-oriented, looking at people as human beings and realizing that a lot of people learn negative things from their family, or they learn negative traits from their culture, or you know, a lot of our parenting just is a knee-jerk action, a knee-jerk action from what we learned from our parents or what they did to us, you know? You know, spare the rods, Spoil the child, you know. I mean, you know, those kind of things back in my training days. And I went, this relationship structure and helping people cognitively change or giving them insights in their behavior and allowing them to come up with different ways of acting than what they had seen, I saw a lot of profound change. So you create a relationship of trust. And you create a relationship where you can interact and play together or interact in a positive way or communicate. And then once you have the trust, then you can move people forward. And I found, wow, that really helps. And then, you know, what, what Ken and I talked about earlier, what happened in 83 and 84 is pharmacologically, they, they couldn't control marijuana, the marijuana studies. And when people were using, you know, the researchers were looking at marijuana, they knew they couldn't control it and make it a monopoly and make millions of dollars off it. Because so, anyone could just grow it. Right. So what they did is they treated it as evil, bad, terrible, and awful. And they, they totally changed the structure. And no longer could anyone even have it in their offices because then they had a controlled substance in their office. And, uh, but a lot of the studies looked really promising because it was helping people with depression, with pain management, with anxiety. And they realized that they could control benzodiazepines, which, you know, all come from the poppy seed, you know, the heroin plant derivative. And they could also control this, <coughs> this, new, this new stuff which was called serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are Prozac and Luvox and, and Zoloft and all of those, you know, myriad of them now. And 
they could make a monopoly out of that. So what they did is they went into that direction. And the more we went into the medical direction and in the pharmacological direction, we made people dependent on the pharmacological piece and the relationship, the only relationship that was there was I am your physician if you're a psychiatrist or an MD and I'm going to manage your medications and you know, this is going to be your savior. This is what's going to help you. And we moved totally away from, I mean, right now psychiatrists don't even learn how to do treatment. They learn how to manage medication. So more pharmacology than how to right. initiate right. therapy. And I find that a nice mix and helping people have the trust in the relationship and not have it all be directed to the pharmacology or the psychopharmacology, you know, the psychopharmacological drugs, help them move out of that dependence and they could wean away from or move away from just being dependent on the, pharma, on the pharmacology. So one of the basis for this was the relationship was deteriorating because the relationship moved from learning and cognitively changing our minds to the medication will do that. And so we don't need the relationship therapy stuff any longer. And I found that people were getting better, but there was no healing taking place. There was just keeping them dependent on the psychopharmacology. So symptoms could be held managed. at bay or managed, managed. Yeah. Uh -huh. but not permanently improved. That's right. interesting. Um, how would you deal with someone like me? So, not that I want you to analyze me right now, but here's my question. I do all the time. Uh, well, I'm no. sure you do everyone all the time, but um, <laughs> to need help, like mental help, is an admission to me beyond acceptance. Because I've always believed that me and God could accomplish anything. And, and you know, if I talk to a church leader about a problem, uh, they never necessarily suggest that I go on and do anything. I talk to them, and then it was me still just struggling. Um, what brings a person to seek help? When you talk about the relationship, if that's not there, you'd never get me. I'd have to have someone be a friend before I'd let them prescribe a drug. Often a crisis. Okay, some kind of crisis. Uh, you know, uh, being so anxious that you can't get out of bed. And then your children or your wife said, we need some help and you're going to go see someone. Or having a significant crisis at work that's impairing your ability to be able to make a living or maintain a living, or um, <clears throat> a depression so debilitating that all you can think about is, uh, I don't want to live like this any longer, and an attempt to try and do away with yourself, or a suicidal ideation, often brought people into therapy, or the loss of a relationship, or the uh, interaction with an authority figure, like a religious leader or a, or a, a principal, 
or a boss at work or a general or sergeant or someone like that in the military mm-hmm. that says, or a doctor saying, you know, I'm concerned about you and I've seen a significant deterioration in you and I have a good friend that I would like to refer you to that I've seen him help a lot of people or her help a lot of people over the years and I think you would do very well. And then they come in totally panicked, fearful, thinking, oh no, everything's going to fall out. And then they realize you're just another guy that puts his pants on the same they do (laughs) and you just have a little education and they think, well, that wasn't bad. You know, he didn't send me away to some psychiatric facility and they didn't put me in a straitjacket so i i will try it again and i will go back and then and then the reinforcement from the boss saying thank you very much you know i think it's time for you to come back to work or the wife saying yes i think i'm willing to talk to you again and you know you see the improvements the social and cultural improvements and then finally the therapist says I think we're done. I think you're doing well enough that you don't need me any longer. Interesting. So <clears throat> I've had an experience with a therapist. Um, again, I had to be brought to my knees, what you just said. There was a crisis. Um, but the reason I was willing to talk to him was two things. I knew he was a religious man of my faith, Um, and he was a personal friend. He'd become an acquaintance through the Black Awareness Group here in Utah County. So two of my children, all of my children are adopted, two of them had African heritage. And um, I've always had, I wouldn't say a short fuse, but I will go from being just cordial and happy and easy to get along with to suddenly furious. I was having one of those mornings this morning. Uh, They're pretty rare in my life anymore. But um, my youngest son could get me. Oh, he could just get me. And I was really angry at him this day for whatever he did. And I rolled up a towel and flipped it. And it hit him right here in the corner of the eye. And that's suddenly when I realized, oh dear, you aren't managing your anger. you got to do something about this. So I called the guy up and I... I went to see him, so no mm-hmm. one recommended mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. It's because I trusted him, and I knew that God could be in our partnership. So when we got in there and I talked to him about my faith and whatever was going on that I was worried about, I felt understood. Does that happen anymore? Can, can God be part of therapy? Well, God is always part of therapy if we believe. Right. But God but, can be part of ther- therapy even if there's only one belief, but it's not as strong. I look at the, the story about Christ in uh, Capernaum or Capernaum, and, uh, you know, he wanted to do so much more there, but because of the lack of faith of those that were there, it diminished not his power, but his ability to be able to do those things because those things are only done out of faith and hope in him. So yes, if there is mutual belief in God, and together you bring him into that relationship, wow, the power increases profoundly, and you can get a lot more done a lot quicker. 
But if you're the only one with the faithful structure, that can also work. Or if the therapist has no faith-based structure, but then the individual takes it, integrates it into their faith-based structure, I've seen that as helping too. So I've, I've just seen over the decades an amazing capacity for faith to work in people's lives and to be very effective when it's also involved in a therapeutic community, in a therapeutic-based relationship, and even with psychopharmacology. Because there is an amazing placebo effect, which we know to work in a lot of people's lives. And if you have faith and trust in the individual that is giving you that, then that placebo effect interacts and can even make that medication even boost or work better than it would normally work. Well, that's certainly something I believe in. It's interesting, um, as you know, my wife recently had a stroke and, yes. and uh, she trusts her rheumatologist rheumatologist and the family doctor and uh, and I just have to smile because all the medication she has to take it six different things are in a pillbox and every day she questions me what's this for and why do I have to take it and I finally learned to say because Dr. Rasmussen who you trust and believe in said to and she she takes it right and right. and I think that that kind of trust or having faith even if it's in this case, the faith in the arm of flesh, you'd be nuts not to, to take advantage of whatever you can that God may have inspired anyone to do. I love that statement in the Book of Mormon where they talk about that people were sick and dying of fevers, but not so much because there were many good plants. Right. <laughs> I think right. that's not the exact right. wording, but right. obviously there were things they chose to use to right. help them too. I do have a difficult time when people in my profession uh, or in the ancillary areas of my profession are deceptive about medication. For example, I, I have a good friend of mine who I have a, a lot of respect for, but I've heard him on probably seven different, different occasions telling people that they had to take this psychotropic medicine because it was, and then using the analogy, it's like a person with diabetes. If they don't take their insulin, they will die. And then he would say, this is very similar. If you don't take this, then you, know, you will not be well. That is not true. That, that is using a false statement to try and power overpower someone with your medical background that this is a necessity. I think it's important that you say this could very well help you and it might create a, a great help with what you're dealing with. But to tell someone that they need it like we need insulin, I think is deception. And anytime you bring deception into the equation, you are diminishing the capacity for that trust and that faith to work because deception begets deception. It does not beget healing. And I have a real difficult time when 
professionals use a deceptive standpoint to, or, or deceptive reasoning or verbalization to back up some pharmaceutical. Because, I mean, diagnostic criteria for psychiatric things, Daryl, is very different than diagnostic criteria for medical illnesses. If you have an acute appendicitis, we got to get you in and we got to get that out or if it explodes inside of you, it's going to create sepsis and you could die. Yes, indeed. Okay, and I can point out, here is your appendix. It's at the end of this organ and if we don't get that out of there, it could explode and you could become septic and you could become very dead. And you know, you're very, very ill. That is not true with psychiatric diagnosis. Psychiatric diagnoses are based on statistical analysis. If you have these symptoms, and if you have 10 of these 11 symptoms, then you have what we call manic depression. But I can't point to you manic depression. And what manic depression might look like in your son's brain might not look the same in this person over here's brain. So there's not just one place that we can go to and go, this is manic depression. Uh -huh. No, it is a statistical symptomology. And when you have those statistical symptoms, then you have manic depressive illness. But manic depressive illness is also called bipolar illness. It's also called bipolar 1. It's also called bipolar 2. And there's moderate and there's severe and there's mild and it it all looks very different in everybody who's got it and to make it easy what we try and do is generalize that and say you have manic depressive illness and what you really have are these symptoms which we call bipolar disorder okay but you can't go in and go, this is where that is and this is what it looks like. Now, I might be able to someday be able to say, I think this is a part of the brain and this part of the brain here and these parts here, I think they really contribute to your manic depressive illness. But then the next person, those might be, those might look very different. Well, and I relate to that right, right now again because of my wife's stroke. She was on a blood thinner, so she shouldn't have had a stroke, okay? Um, the neurologist the next day said, you know, Sue, that blood thinner must not work for your body type. That was like a real admission for me to hear. Right. He hadn't been able yet to see the MRI. But today, when we were at the stroke clinic, his age showed us exactly in the brain where that stroke was. And the feeling that came over me because of the evidence was just good. Right. And it helped settle the thing about the discussion on blood thinners. So we talked about right. them. We talked to, and, and he didn't say, this one's going to work. We're going to try it again and see if right. this one gives you the benefit. But if not, there's this third right. one. And I thought, right. you know, that's sort of partnership right. in medicine. Right. And you can point to that struck, point where it happened, and actually follow the bleed and see if it's still bleeding or if it stopped. But again, even with the stroke, 
it could have been that she was on the wrong medication which created that. Sure. And recently I was um, at the Salt Lake Temple and an individual showed all the symptomology of having a stroke. All of it. I mean, you know, I think if any neurologists were there, I think if any MD were sitting there, they would have said, this man is having a stroke. And we called the ambulance, we got the ambulance there, and they rushed him up to the hospital and found out that he really wasn't having a stroke, but he was taking too much of his brand new blood pressure medicine. He was taking the same dosage as his old one, but you were only supposed to take only one pill a day, and he was taking three pills a day. Oh, dear. And it caused all the symptoms of... but. Once they did an MRI of his brain, there were no symptoms of a stroke. But we, it, was, it was 12 hours after the stroke that we found out that because they asked him what blood pressure medicine he was taking, they told him, and they gave him one, and he said, no, I take three. And they said, no, you don't. <laughs> and he was taking what he was taking for his own medicine. So yes, medicine or other things can mimic an illness. And we see the same thing in psychiatric diagnosis too. Because, for example, if a person's under severe stress, or if a person is having a stroke, or if a person is having a heart attack, we can often see symptoms that might look like depression, or anxiety, or other things, and if you don't really understand what's going on, this is not a panic attack, this is a heart attack. Or this is not a heart attack, this is a panic attack, but it looks just like a heart attack, and the blood pressure is raised, and the heart is going wacky, and the guy can't stand anymore, and he passed out while giving the talk at the podium, but he had a severe panic attack. It was not a heart attack. So they can mimic each other. Sure. So here's a perfect example in June when this whole cascade of bad things happened for my wife. Uh -huh. um, she'd had a cough or chest pain or something, and they quickly did an ultrasound and found out that she had pneumonia. Uh -huh. But she didn't. Right. She had blood clots, and they were collecting in the lung, but they didn't know that until we came to the emergency room and did a full MRI. So... I mean, in medicine, we can jump to conclusions, I'm sure. And having been an army medic, I'm way under trained. So when I saw those symptoms in my wife for a stroke, and I took her in, they said, oh, this is just TIA. And I thought, I don't think so, but let's wait and see. So, you know, they did another uh, CAT scan, and they did an MRI, and then they were back with, oh, yeah, right. this was the real thing. Right. So, yeah, it's probably pretty confusing or... Right. Or you can diagnose things wrong. Right. So let me ask you about another area. Um, both my wife and you were, a beneficiary, were beneficiaries of an exercise that was unexpected for me from a book I've been reading called The Power of Eight by Lynn McTaggart. Uh -huh. Now, the chapter I'm in from Lynn McTaggart lets me know that she has a much stronger Christian belief than she lets on. So she's professionally a journalist, and you can tell she's trying to sanitize everything. So she calls um, 
prayer or meditation intention. And that's apparently a new vogue term that you send out good vibes to the universe or wherever about X, Y, or Z to make it happen. Uh, in your case, you'd been ill for a number of days with the flu. And the boss just sent a text message to eight of us and said, let's see if we can help Tom feel better. At 9.30, we're all going to pray for like 10 minutes to see if it happens. And what happened to you? I got better. Isn't that amazing? So The power of eight. The power of eight and intention or prayer. Right. Whatever it and is. And hope and belief. Sure. All of those things right. combining right. with other people helping. Now, this woman tested, she had groups of thousands working on intentions, but one day she just decided to see what would happen with eight. And the reason why is that she was thinking about Christ's 12 disciples, his apostles. Okay. And she said, wasn't it interesting that Jesus selected a group of 12? I wonder if that's the right size, if you don't need thousands. What if 12 people pray for one, one thing to see what would happen? But she didn't have the right numbers, so she just divided her audience up into eights. And among the eight, people... I guess if you get any eight people together, someone's going to have a need that they're not afraid to articulate. And there were ten groups, and the next morning, after they had done ten-minute intention, eight of the people stood up and gave testimonials about the change. So that's where I was reading. I'm in the emergency room. They're telling me it's a TIA. My wife has lost vision in her right eye, use of her right arm, and her right leg. And I text three groups of eight I could count on. And by the time the neurologist walked in, she could use her leg. She said, I'm getting my feeling back in my arm, and suddenly she could see. It was like it went down and then just came right back out. And there's some residuals. But, wow, this power. Tell me what you think about that. I remember a conversation I had with Elder Neil A. Maxwell, who was an apostle in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we were talking, we were involved in writing a manual, and we were talking about the universe, <laughs> which, which he called the pluriverse. Oh. Uh, because he believed that it had different layers within the structure. And... Um, I was trying to get my head around and my heart around this concept he was talking about. Uh -huh. And he intimated initially that the same structural process that the great creator, him believing that Jesus Christ was the great Jehovah who created all things, and one of his favorite lines was, in Christ all things hold together. So he was using that analogy with me, and he stated, Tom, you have a universe inside of you. Because to an atom, there is as much distance from the top of your head to the bottom of your foot as there is in the entire universe. And you, through learning how to control and deal with this body over the years and the decades that you have this body, the more you understand how to deal with the universe that is inside of you. Because 
in his faith, he believes that someday we will be responsible for a universe and all the creations within us if we move to the highest degree of, of the glory which he believes in. And that started really making sense to me because the more in my education and in my learning, I've learned about the body and I've learned about the foot and I've learned about the knee and the muscles and the sinews and the guts and, and the intestines. And, and I've been in operating rooms where I've seen them you know, trying to deal with an intestine where someone has stabbed someone and there's a hole in the intestine. And they hold, they hang it up on this hook and literally it stretches all the way to the ceiling and then the gloved surgeon is looking for the, and finds it and then either has to take that part out because it's necrotic, it's died, and then sews it back together and then through gravity they move this down and all these intestines find their way inside this body and then they sew it back up. I thought every time I would see that after that or experience something in the operating room, I would say, oh my goodness, he was right. Because it's like they know where they belong and they know how to fit in there. And you know, when you've strung an intestine all the way up to the ceiling, you think, how are we going to stuff it back in, you know? I mean, you know, how are you, you going to get that spaghetti back in the box, you know? But it's amazing to see how hearts know when they're wrong and the symptoms, how eyes know. But when we have the power of people who also have these pluriverses, these universes inside of them, how those things work together and the power of these functioning bodies has great power over settling the difficulty in another one. And for eight, it really works amazingly. It is. Do we understand it completely? No. Not at all. <laughs> I certainly don't. I've had to do, trust Brian, these with Brian. absolute blind Do faith. we understand the brain completely? Well, we know it a heck of a lot better than when I was in school. I mean, I've had to give up, Daryl, probably 84, 86% of all the information I learned about the brain because it was all wrong. But it taught me how to learn about the brain. Yeah. And so it allowed me to add the new information over the years and the decades and the months. So now I have a much better understanding of how the brain works. But the majority of the information I had to throw out because it was all dead wrong. And I wonder how much I will have to throw out when someday I'm safely dead and I get to the other side and then I truly understand how it works. But again, it will give me ability. Knowledge adds to knowledge. And spirit adds to spirit. And I am not sitting next to a star which will someday burn out. I'm sitting next to an individual that is eternal who will live forever. And, you know, a lot of people can't get their hands around that. But when you get your hands and your head around that, knowledge, you know 
that we have so much more information than we ever give ourselves credit for. Yeah. And see, that's that three-act play. Inside of all of us, we know these things. And when you start giving people that knowledge with faith and hope and energy, like I'm giving it to you, lots of energy, we start opening and those parts of our brains go, oh yeah, I remember that. Where did that come from? And even if you don't believe in God, even if you have no formal religious process, but you start believing in yourself and realizing you are eternal. As C.S. Lewis says, you know, we're never around just mere mortals. We're all eternal beings. And somehow, through my experience, I realize that our body knows that. Our sinews know that. Our atoms know that. And they work together for our good when we understand truth. And when we're out of truth, Daryl, when we're in darkness, then what happens is the body can create darkness too. But light seems to initially come out of darkness. You know, if you, if you read the astrophysicists and they talk about the Big Bang, you know, you know which is our, our small amount of knowledge of where this all started, but the bottom line is that was all darkness. And the darkness grew and grew until it became so intense that it finally went, and here was this light. So darkness within it, if it depends on how you look at it. If you just see it as darkness, it's going to create more darkness. But if you see it as a massive amount of dark energy, then that energy gets so strong that it explodes and all that light comes from it. And that light, which emits to each person, wherever the intention is, lights that area and we know light heals. We know light aligns with light. So we know that much. And that's, to me, that's the structure. And God the Father and the Son, one of their names is the light of the world. You know, the light of all things. And where they are, there is no darkness. And so we are their children. We come from them. So we have that same light capacity within us. Yep. And through intention, I can share that light with you. What an interesting idea. I thank you for sharing that. I think Ken is off his call. Oh, okay. And probably ready to do his thing. Well, that's what we were going to do next. Okay. And we'll end this segment. <laughs>